If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Hey, it's your host, Kamea, and you're listening to Green Dreamer, a community-powered podcast. To be honest, we need more listener donations to be able to keep this show alive because, as you can see, we no longer do product advertisements, and we really want to keep it this way because we don't want to sell you things you don't need, and more importantly, we knew we needed to shed the incentive of appealing to corporate sponsors so that we can maintain our very critical lenses and continue to question a lot of mainstream ideas and big green narratives. And if every listener chipped in just $2 a month, we would meet our fundraising goal in no time. So join us today to be a co-creator of Green Dreamer at greendreamer.com support or at patreon.com greendreamer. When you have your neurodivergent or your body is different and you can't necessarily produce work <laughs> or be effective in, in capitalism's narrative, it's problematizing you have to fix it. But in a lot of ways, it made me notice more about the environment. And I noticed small things. I noticed insects and slime mold and mushrooms and rootlets. And I could notice perturbations in pressure changes and weather. And it seemed strange that this thing that made me hyper aware and often very fatigued by my over-awareness of the world, also opened me up to more aliveness than other people seem to be able to access. Today we're speaking with Sophie Strand, a writer based in the Hudson Valley who focuses on the intersection of spirituality, storytelling, and ecology. Her first book of essays, The Flowering Wand, Rewilding the Sacred Masculine, is available for pre-order and will be published by Inner Traditions in fall of 2022, and her eco-feminist historical fiction Reimagining of the Gospels, The Madonna Secret, will also be published by Inner Traditions in the spring of 2023. I was raised by parents who really encouraged me to be outside. I was raised in the wilderness. We rehabilitated wild animals. We had a big backyard that led into the forest in the shadow of a mountain. And I spent a lot of time outside. I'm also a CSA, childhood sex abuse survivor. So I had a very alert nervous system. 
And I think that we problematize that a lot inside of our culture because, you know, when you have your neurodivergent or your body is different and you can't necessarily produce work <laughs> or be effective in, in capitalism's narrative, it's problematized and you have to fix it. But in a lot of ways, it made me notice more about the environment. And I noticed small things. I noticed insects and slime mold and mushrooms and rootlets. And I could notice perturbations in pressure changes and weather. And it seemed strange that this thing that made me hyper aware and often very fatigued by my over awareness of the world also opened me up to more aliveness than other people seemed to be able to access. So I was very aware of mushrooms. They seemed to me to be, I liked how they were capricious. They were neither good nor bad. You know, they were very like fairies in the old classical, like Irish sense, which is really not interested in human beings. Sometimes they could do you a favor. Sometimes they'd be really, really naughty. You know, sometimes a mushroom would be poisonous, sometimes be neutral, sometimes it would be delicious. So I loved that about them, that mutability. But when I was 16, I fell very dramatically ill. And it was a long, it was about six, I would say six, seven years of different diagnoses in and out of the hospital, life-threatening organ issues and not being able to figure out exactly what was going on. And as that was happening, I was deepening my love of fungi and I was learning a little bit about forest ecology and how mycorrhizal systems constitute ecosystems. They tie orchids and grasses and trees together. They help trees communicate. They ferry bacteria along highways. They actually create the health of the soil. They break things down so that they keep unlocking minerals so that they can feed all the other beings in the forest. So they're doing all of these different, incredibly interesting things. So I was thinking about rhizomes, reading Deleuze and Guattari, thinking about rhizomatic thinking in a philosophical sense, being like, can we plant that in actual ecology when I got the diagnosis of connective tissue disease finally? And I realized that the thing that had been causing me so much physical issue was perhaps an opening to a more than human connective tissue, mycorrhizal fungi. And when you have connective tissue disease like I do, which is Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, and it's, we're recording this in May, which is Ehlers-Danlos Awareness Month, your connective tissue doesn't work correctly. So you, your joints sublux, you dislocate, your veins get lazy, things don't fit together correctly. There, there's too much interstitial space. And I was thinking as I was falling more and more in love with fungi, that what I needed to really do was invite them in to colonize me poetically, <laughs> and to make myself a mouthpiece for them. My condition didn't have a cure. It's incurable. But perhaps I could melt my idea of what individual healing looks like and use my, my particular plight as a doorway into empathizing and advocating for another being. Hmm. I'm just so moved in general by how poetic everything flows through you and I very much feel and agree that mycelium and fungi blur a lot of the boundaries and rigid categories that we've created and challenges a lot of identities of selfhood and individualism. So there's a lot more, of course, to go into here. In trying to trace the beginnings of when our relationship with our ecosystems and the planet started to unravel or become more hierarchical, 
Various past guests have named different things like the Industrial Revolution or the advent of agriculture, the beginnings of map making, colonial capitalism, and so forth. And there are, of course, elements of truth in all of that, I think. I don't think we can ever neatly pinpoint one event because everything feeds into one another and constantly builds off of what came prior. And everything essentially is interactive. But in terms of a deeper shift that you name as disenchantment, you take us way back to when our ways of storytelling changed to become more of abstractions that later may have become decontextualized, or you say deracinated, which I love that word. It's the first time I was learning of it, and it's way cooler. And also calcified, or as you also say, ossified. So I would love if you could take us through this thought process on how the changes in our dominant modes of storytelling and tools of language may have translated or affected how we relate to the living world and the world at large. Thank you. Yeah, well, of course, to first acknowledge all of this is, is backforming and all of it is in a certain way fictional. But as we learn about space-time mattering and quantum physics qua, you know, the feminist Karen Barad, we realize that our experience of the present is tugging on the past. It's changing the past too. So there's something playful and creative about it. So for me, I really think the transition between oral cultures into written cultures, which are called technically in academia, chirographic textual cultures, chirographic cultures, for me really signals a conceptual change that then uproots us from a kind of embedded environmental relational existence in such a way that a, a certain kind of analytical, linear material reductionist thinking becomes possible. So what I'm really interested in is, you know, for most, for, for thousands and thousands of years, most of human history, storytelling has been oral. And that's almost too simple to say. Knowledge has been oral. That if you didn't speak the knowledge constantly, you had no history book or dictionary to look it up in. You had to constantly be telling stories. You know, you had to have storytelling gatherings every week in order to keep knowledge alive. There was no residue. There was no object where you kept knowledge. Knowledge lived in relationships. It was never a solitary activity. And it was also never... I think there's a modern fiction. So we have a chirographic lens of looking back on oral cultures, which is problematic. We imagine them as, as, you know, we think of Marshall McLuhan, the medium is the message. Like we think of them as thinking with chirographic textual minds, but they wouldn't even have had a book in mind. So they, they would experience themselves as remembering a story word for word. But what they were really doing is constantly adapting a story to shifting political, ecological, climatological pressures. So stories were always updating. Like there's this idea that Homer and the Odyssey were one memorized story that was unchanging. But the truth is that Homer was a tradition. It was a collective experience by a whole culture, probably, where you would memorize certain themes, certain epithets that then you could recycle into these episodic shapes so that you could tell the story in your own way. And I, I think for me, oral culture is about knowledge as relationship, knowledge as movement. I always mm -hmm. say oral cultures totalize. They see the holarchic nature. They see that there's no such thing as an, an individual node of cognition. 
our intelligence is interstitial. It only exists when we come together. <laughs> and chirographic textual cultures dissect and monumentalize. So written words are residue. And that's the interesting thing for me about writing is writing makes us think that words are similar to things. When you write something down, suddenly you think an elephant is an object rather than breath. A word disappears as you say it. It's an event rather than an, an object. So for me, the movement from oral culture to written culture is the movement from relational consciousness to objectification. I mean, the biggest difference is you cannot and you would not tell a story alone in oral culture. It was always about communal knowledge. And in fact, one of the interesting things for me that I'm writing about right now is in oral cultures, there's an incredible honoring of the elders because the elders have the oldest reserves of knowledge and stories. So you, you really want the elders to always be telling their stories so that you can understand them, adapt them, compost them, keep the knowledge alive. And in a written culture, the elders are um, trashed for books. And suddenly you make elders into an object. So you don't need to pay attention to the elders in a community. You can pay attention to a book. But the problem about books is books are not ecological objects. Textual culture pretends like we are these typographical assembly line words on a page rather than entangled, messy, relational beings. Mm. Yeah, I think that really speaks to the concerns with when we take the word or the concept or the constructed system as being more real than whatever they're actually created based on. And we're going to come back to this, but to give a more concrete example, literally, of the trouble with ossifying or calcifying something that maybe should be allowed to be much more dynamic, you talk about cities and communities that don't change with the seasons and don't shift with migrations of animals and plants and other more than human beings. And this is something I've been ruminating on, which I don't have an answer to, but I think about the vibrant culture that the melting pot of diverse peoples co-create together in these mega metropolitan cities like New York. It's lively, it's unique, it's beautiful, and in many ways, examples that showcase the brilliance and creativity of the people that are there. And at the same time, I can't help but sense that it's still ultimately a co-creation that is a cultural disassociation from the culture of the land base that it has been layered on top of, because that type of a metropolitan culture is being co-created while being kind of shielded from the evolving culture and elements of the land. So there seems to be an insistence on systematizing what can't really be systematized and maybe should be worked with and for people to become more attuned to, to incorporate into the culture rather than to tune out of. So what comes to mind for you here as we think about the relationship between the role of our senses to help keep us rooted in the evolving characteristics and gifts and needs of our landscapes and the rigidity of how cities are often designed to disassociate people from that dynamic ecology? a great question. Yeah, I really want to first situate myself within Anna Singh's idea of disturbance regimes. And like, I don't really believe in the dichotomy between like city and nature. I think that when you use the bathroom, you're involved in nature, you know, <laughs> the the plastic, the Mesozoic ferns that have been churned into exhaust are nature. So I, I just want to first situate that I'm not fetishizing some pristine option as 
opposed to cities. The thing about cities that worries me is they outsource their waste to other populations, usually minorities, oppressed populations. And I think cities for me are a real intensification of what it means to abstract yourself from your shit. And they don't understand food webs. And I think cities are an incredible intensification of collaboration and symbiosis, culturally, multi-species, um, multi-language. And, and in fact, I think in a lot of ways, cities are where some of the best environmental thinking is happening right now. So I don't want to problematize them totally. But I also think that they don't operate like food webs. In food webs, one person's waste becomes another person's food. And I think in cities, what they do is they create a lot. A lot of waste is created that then is outsourced to other communities. And so hmm, I'm trying to think about this. I mean, I just read The Dawn of Everything. Have you read that by David Graeber? And David Wenner, I think? Not yet. Yeah, I mean, I think my thinking about cities is shifting right now. So my answer to this question reflects that uncertainty. And uncertainty is a good place to live, which is, I think, you know, for thousands of years, human beings lived in a kind of liminal realm between nomadic living and cities, where they would live in cities occasionally for seasons or for ritual purposes, and then they would switch back to a kind of nomadic existence. And those situations, which we find all across the world, seem to have been much more sustainable. So I think I'm interested in, in urban living as something that's not quite as static as it is. Is it something that is celebrated, but also understood doesn't work in every climate and every season? Yeah, and I love the acknowledgement that these are evolving thoughts. Nothing is ever set in place. Like if I were to listen back to the things that I said a few years ago, you know, I've changed so much. So I love the acknowledgement of a humility that our thoughts are evolving and our feelings are evolving as we speak with more people and take in more information and open up our senses even more to the state of the world. And this is piggybacking off of my past conversations with Bio Akomolafe and Vanessa Andreotti and Kate Sandilands and others as well. But it very much feels like we or those in the dominant culture are often trying to systematize what cannot be neatly systematized, control what cannot really be controlled, and conceptualize frameworks and rules, but based on a reality that actually is much more dynamic and ever-evolving. And I don't even really want to even name this human supremacy because I'm realizing that naming it this way sort of reduces our understanding of who we can be as humans. So maybe it's more of an intellectual supremacy that privileges thinking over our many other senses that we may have muted or that have been systemically suppressed or co-opted. But back to this idea of rerouting our storytelling and your love for mycelium, I was very much drawn to how you use mycelium as a metaphor for us to understand the diverse mythologies that have been produced from different times and different places throughout history. So how exactly do you see these myths as a mycelium and these gods and legends as sort of the fruiting mushrooms of different historical moments and environments? And then consequently, what does that tell us about our need to let go of stories of universality? You know, we live 
in a culture that's fixated on gurus and heroes' journeys and individuals. Mm -hmm. And, you know, individual authorship is also another product of textuality. You know, in oral culture, no one believes they own a story or wrote it themselves. (laughs) And also everyone understands that everything they do is relational. You know, you're a compost heap of all of your kin that help you grow the food. You know, every time you breathe in, you're breathing in spores and microbiome that are then reconstituting your cells. And so for me, I think it was important when I was looking at mythology to begin to problematize these myths of human supremacy and individualism and the hero's journey. And also the myth that masculinity is patriarchy. That was my kind of entry point. Like, you know, there's always a biodiversity underneath a monomyth. And as I was thinking about this, of course, fungi have always been my way of thinking through things. And... Okay, so you have above-ground mushrooms, but mushrooms are really reproductive events. They are super, they superficially look like individuals. Underground are long-living, huge, vast-spreading mycelial networks of hyphal thread, you know, fine webbing that has no body plan. And the really interesting thing about fungi that they teach us is they don't have a distinct morphology. When you pour them into an ecosystem, they find the best shape that maps the relationship. So they're a cartography of relationships. And so they teach us a lot about how, although we think we are individuals, we are really embedded in environments that are shaping us constantly. And we're probably going to be most resilient and most healthy when we acknowledge that embeddedness. So for me, I was, I was looking at, I'm very interested in vegetal gods. So dying, resurrecting gods in the Mediterranean basin associated with resurrection, invasive species, insurrection, fermentation, wine. You know, a lot of people are backforming psychedelic use. I think it's a little questionable given the actual information. And I was thinking that, yes, they're all different. And, you know, when they, when they fruit in specific places, they're very specifically mushrooms that are adapted to a specific time, specific oppressions and social situations. And yet they all seem to have dominant themes. And so I was thinking, what if we could think of all of these vegetal gods like Osiris and Dionysus and Orpheus and even Jesus as being those above ground mushrooms of a shared mythic mycelium? And As I was working with this, I was also thinking about, well, do you know that plants didn't have root systems until fungi taught them to have root systems, Kamea? No, I didn't. That's so fascinating. This, I mean, so this is one of my favorite pieces of information ever, (laughs) which is that 400 billion years ago, plants made it out of the ocean, but they were like jelly blobs or like dustweed, tumbleweeds. They had no root systems and they had a really hard time accessing minerals or creating stable complex ecosystems. They had no way of rooting into the soil. And slowly over time, fungi had been around longer than plants and they'd been around longer in the soil. And fungi have a rhizomatic, a root system life style. That's how they, that's how they decay food. That's how they explore ecosystems. That's how they create relationships. And they acted as the surrogate root system for tens of millions of years of all plants. And slowly plants learned how to have root systems. But even to this day, most plants, there's there's a misconception that plants have 
get all of their nutrients from the root systems. They have relatively small radius of where their roots can actually go. I think it's 90% of plants have mycorrhizal systems that help them do most of the work. And so I think it's really interesting that all every vegetable you eat today, every plant you see is the product of a fungal collaboration, from a multi-species, interpenetrative, anarchic, intercorporeal, long-lasting collaboration. And I was thinking of just as plants, fungi taught plants how to root into place and access the nutrition of a specific place, so do myths teach us how to root into a specific place and how to have a more ecologically correct and resilient relationship with all of the beings in a specific place. You know, if we look at storytelling for thousands of years, what it was really telling us was what time things flower, how much do you actually harvest? <laughs> what what do you do to maintain right relationship with land? And I think that right now there's a lot of problematic idea of homogenizing universalisms that erase differences. But the truth is that the ecological wisdom of one valley cannot be transplanted across a continent. We all have myths and ecological wisdom that is going to be particularly adapted to our particular place. And so I think it's really interesting to look at myths as being rooted in specific places. I think the best example of how this is done badly is when a Galilean rabbi in Second Temple period Palestine is uprooted from his language and his place and his context and then disseminated across the globe to many different ecosystems for thousands of years without adapting his story. Yeah, this is really giving me flashbacks to my past conversation with Alnora Lada, where he invited us to recognize ourselves also as contextual beings and recognizing various forms of spirituality also as having come from very specific contexts. And I think we live in a dominant culture that tends to underplay and undervalue the role of myths in general, as much as it also undervalues our feelings and emotions and other senses in order to perceive the world with. And I know you see science and myth as being much more similar than they may be portrayed to be. So what compels you to not see science and myth as antagonistic, but as spilling over into one another? And also, what is the role of myth and our other sensorial experiences that tend to be deemed as not credible as sources of information in helping us to actually better understand the climate crisis and broader socio-ecological spiritual crises that we find ourselves in today? Mm, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, the poet Robert Bringhurst, who I owe a lot to, to his environmental thinking, says that myths aim like science at perceiving and expressing ultimate truths, but the hypotheses of myths are framed as stories, not as equations, technical descriptions, or taxonomic rules. While a scientist quantifies reality, a myth teller personifies it. Because mythologies and sciences alike aspire to be true, they are both perpetually under revision. Both lapse into dogma when this revision lapses. And I think that science and myth are both trying to make sense of the world. They're just using different tool sets. And it's very easy right now. You know, science is a tool. It's not a theology. And it's become, scientism has become this kind of theology, which is a 
a problem because then, of course, myth and science are opposed to each other. But when we can see them as being in conversation, suddenly a lot more becomes possible. The philosopher Isabel Stengers, who writes a lot about the history of science, says we need to have an ecology of practices in science that all overlap. And I think one of those practices needs to be a kind of storytelling. Maybe it's not mythology, but we need scientific storytelling that makes these ideas accessible to people and also invites in indigenous science and qualitative ways of knowing. There's so much we don't understand because we're only allowing in quantitative evidence. But the truth is that so much is qualitative. And for most of history, most people have known that it's these, these intuitive, sensory, embodied experiences of what's happening that's going to give you the best information about how to live correctly. And so I think that it would be nice to see a kind of diffusion process between storytelling and between science. And we see some books that are doing that right now in an interesting way. I'm thinking about Entangled Life. I'm thinking about Writing Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. My new favorite is Otherlands by Thomas Halliday, which I think is really interesting because it takes you out of the human and back into deep time. And it's interesting, it's so interesting because the humans disappear in the first chapter and the whole rest of the book is so disinterested in that story. <laughs> and I, I think that myth when it's rooted in a larger context, when it decenters human narratives and centers weather systems and landscapes and invasive species, can teach us to think on scales that are not just human. We need that in conservation science right now. Conservation science is really stymied by its very short span of what species are correct, what makes a climactic ecosystem, you know, what is a pristine environment. And I think that if we composted conservation science with a little of a little mythology, a little deep time, it might be deeply helpful. Mm, yeah, we've certainly learned so much from scientists and the field of science and the scientific method. And so I really want to hold that front and center and honor that. And to take a step back, I wonder also what we might miss and overlook with its foundation of needing for findings to be replicable, for that to be considered credible. Because if we consider what we talked about earlier in that mushrooms are the fruits that sort of synthesize and are reflective of their particular environments, and that they cannot be studied outside of that very specific context because they embody that context, then I think about how the ways we sense and perceive our environments can also never be replicated either because our environments are ever-changing. So one might never be able to replicate the growth of one exact mushroom to have it turn out exactly the same, just as the ways we sense our world might not ever be able to be replicated. But it shouldn't make that less valid. So perhaps it calls on us to give more weight to place-specific and moment-specific knowledge and feelings and storytelling rather than saying that only repeatable and generalizable findings are true or that they are more true and more real. Yeah, and I mean, we're actually even going through a rep replicability crisis where it turns out a lot of um, experiments that are s supposed to be replicable are not. <laughs> and so that whole myth is, mm -hmm. speaking of myths and science, is kind of crumbling right now. I believe Rupert Sheldrake wrote a really interesting article about that. I mean... 
I think that it's this desire for control. And you want to be able to control all of the elements of the experiment. But, you know, in quantum physics, what you realize is your desire to control the experiment changes it every single time. <laughs> that you are entangled with what you are studying in a way that is always going to be shifting your results. And honoring that connective tissue between you and what you're studying may be the more interesting thing to study. I mean, I'm interested in the, the liminality, the interstices between, you know, bio talks about the cracks. And because I have connective tissue, I experience my body as being kind of not a unity, as being full of cracks and, and subluxations. And so I'm interested in that connective tissue between the scientists and what they're studying. Like, that's what I would like to study. <laughs> not the experiments that can be replicated, but the relationships that constitute the experiments in the first place. And that seems to me to be the work of people who have some kind of storytelling ability, some kind of intuitive sense of how to feel into a knowability. Like, I really wish that there was more room for humility and for uncertainty in these experiments. And I think that because funding is so hard to get and because there's a kind of false objectivity that is injected into these scientific papers, you have to pretend a certainty that you don't necessarily have. But right now, uncertainty would probably be the healthiest place to be. Like, I think a lot about how when you don't know what crisis is coming, which is kind of where we are right now, it's better to be agile and able to dance than to try and predict exactly what's going to happen. Like, it's better to be fluid have your lymph system moving, be able to dance, than to try and have a set idea and predict exactly what's going to happen. Yeah. And to take this further, to keep pushing back against rigid interpretations or narratives, the subtitle of your book, The Flowering Wand, is Rewilding the Sacred Masculine. And to trouble the dominant and perhaps overgeneralized narrative of the masculine, you talk about how there's been a conflation of masculinity and patriarchal capitalism, and that instead of getting rid of toxic masculinity, perhaps we ought to think about overwhelming it with a biodiversity of other experiences. I'd be curious to hear you expand on this, this idea of not giving it a podium, but to put it in a room with 300 different voices. And also this question that it brought up for me, which is, is diversifying the narrative of masculinity also another way of undefining and queering it with a multitude of other meanings and forms? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I will say Rewilding the Sacred Masculine was not my subtitle. My subtitle was Lunar Kings, Lycanized yeah. Lovers, Trans Species Magicians, and <laughs> Rhizomatic Harpists, Heal the Masculine. But that was a little too much of a mouthful for the general audience. I would probably not have picked Sacred Masculine. But I, I think a lot about how we live in an antibiotic culture, not just medically, but in terms of philosophically, culturally ecologically we are always trying to manage and clean things up it's it's we negate things in order to preserve certain ideas and you know when i first got sick i was put on multiple rounds of antibiotics and the effect of this was to kill off every good bacteria in my gut as well and it left behind too much open real estate for monologuing pathogens to come and take over my gut and make me really 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 sick and what I really needed to do was not to take more antibiotics, but to take probiotics that would get those pathogens into a corner and keep them controlled. 
And so I think about why do so many men I love gravitate towards these figures who I find to be really problematic? And then I was thinking, well, it's because they're the only voices speaking right now. And they're, they're speaking in a culture that is actively trying to tamp down the other voices so that it looks superficially like that is what masculinity is. Masculinity is imperial capitalistic patriarchy. But then I was actually in my research into Rabbi Yeshua for this book I was writing, thinking about how before patriarchal capitalism, there was a biodiversity of different masculinities, masculinities that overlap with many different fields of gender expression that are on a rhizomatic continuity with, with animals and with, with plants and with symbiotic lichenized collaborations. And I was thinking that perhaps the best way to heal this toxic masculine discourse was not to try and participate in the antibiotic culture and get rid of it, but to overwhelm it with so many other older, wilder voices. I mean, composting is another great metaphor for this, which is when you, you know, a compost heap is not something that is clean or necessarily organized. Like there are a lot of rules for composting now, but the oldest examples we have of composting are the anarchic shit fields in Scotland. You know, people would just use the bathroom in the same field that they grew their f food in. And I was thinking that composting is you throw these figures on the compost heap who are really toxic, but then you throw some other stories on and suddenly something unexpected sprouts that's more specifically adapted to this particular moment. Yeah, I love that analogy. And I take your invitation to rewild the masculine and more broadly to rewild our own myths as a call to diversify our narratives and also to situate them in our specific times and rooted ecologies. And with this, I've been thinking a lot about the cultural impact of mass media and digital media platforms that have made it easier than ever to disseminate stories and narratives widely across the entire globe so that even as we recognize the value in that form of online connection, we might also see that the more rooted and ecologically situated connections and stories may have been compromised as a result. So how have you seen this transformation in our social relations change our ways of storytelling and how we relate to place? And how would you invite us to think beyond universalized activism as we think about our roles in support of collective healing? Yeah, thank you. I think that in a very surface level, you know, Adrienne Marie Brown writes about right now we're part of movements that are a mile wide and an inch thick instead of an inch wide and a mile deep. You know, we have all these surface connections, but we don't actually understand where we are. We don't have kinship and strong relations with the people who live next to us or the plants outside our homes. And the truth is that if the grid goes down or something bad happens, we saw this with COVID, the people and the beings you're actually going to depend on are the ones that are within like a five mile radius of where you live. That's your actual ecosystem. And I think that because this very image centered visual social media has become dominant, we've become attracted to charismatic causes and charismatic places. So, you know, we'll hop on a plane to go protect an old growth forest because it's more charismatic. It looks better than the scrubby field behind your house that someone's trying to develop, you know? And mm. it's hard. I did not expect 
to be talking about the stuff online. My experience of sharing my work online happened quickly and in a way that I'm still very unnerved by, to be perfectly honest, because I'm a pretty, you know, I walk the same walk every day. I say hello to the same animals. Like I have a very small situated existence and that's, you know, my greatest teacher is the woodchuck behind my house, not some guru who lives in a different country. But my woodchuck is not going to be your woodchuck. And so it always runs the risk. Like I, I, I'm very worried right now by a kind of precious environmentalism and eco enchantment. There's like, there's a simple heuristics, like here are the five things you can do to become ecologically aware. And that feels too easy to me. I almost want to say like, there's going to be a very specific being where you live that's going to ask you to do a very specific thing. And I definitely don't know what that is. <laughs> I do think that I want to encourage people to have those quiet, weird, unphotographable relationships with the beings that actually constitute you metabolically. Like if we, I, I think a lot about spiders and how they think with their entire webs. And as we're learning more about cognition, we realize it doesn't just happen in the brain. It happens in our whole bodies. And I think sometimes that I'm thinking with my whole web of relations. And those are not going to be people I'm connected with online. Even if I'm having really good intellectual discourse with them, even if we're emailing, the beings that I'm actually thinking with and thinking for are the not very flashy dandelions, you know, the trout, the waste plant that's down the road from my apartment. Like I'm involved and implicated in that. I've got to think with that. So yeah, I always kind of want to problematize what I'm seeing as a rather saccharine eco-awakening discourse that is being easily disseminated online right now. Yeah. And just to bring in something that I learned from Dr. Tyson Yankaporta before, he mentioned that solutions and knowledge can't be replicated, but they can be syndicated to where we are. So I think this kind of sums up what we just said here. So like we may be able to learn from these generalized information, but we have to learn to apply them and incorporate them into the very specific landscapes and times and communities where we are. And the last thing I want to touch on is you've noted before that in moments where salvation and apocalyptic predictions arise, so do ideas about purity and cleanliness because the environment may feel uncontrollable, end quote. And this really resonated because I think as people learn about the historical backdrop of how we got here and where things went wrong, sometimes that can be romanticized and people may conclude that we need to go back. Or otherwise, some people may misinterpret our curiosity to critique this illusion of progress as a call that we need to turn back the clocks to a less messy and more pure time. But you've also troubled this idea of purifying ourselves as our ways forward. So just as some final words of guidance, I would love for you to close off on what you mean by this poetic metaphor of learning to digest and metabolize this increasingly complex and even contaminated substances thrown our ways. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think a lot about oyster mushrooms and how there are oyster mushrooms that grow towards radioactive material in Chernobyl that learn how to eat cigarette butts. And that 
I think there's this idea that you can run away to the forest and, you know, the nuclear plants will somehow figure themselves out. But the truth is that we are implicated. You know, there's no exclusion zone. We're all threaded through with the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki that happened years ago. Like those are in us actually molecularly. We are Mm. all threaded through with a kind of pollution that we cannot undo, but we need to learn how to collaborate with. And I've been thinking, so apocalypse is a... It's an interesting word and an interesting concept. And I I was very interested in how Jesus has been misinterpreted as being an apocalyptic prophet, but he actually broke with his teacher. If you look at the time period and the actual Jewish traditions, his teacher, John the Baptist, was, was preaching that the apocalypse was to come. And Jesus said, no, the kingdom, you know, the next stage is here right now. And it's actually the the metaphors he summoned were all of the things that within Jewish custom were impure. Leaven, invasive species, women, Samaritans. That in fact, if the interesting through line in his teachings is that the kingdom is impurity. And I think that for me is the most radical thing we can do is say, all right, I can't take these plastic pellets out of my lungs and my blood. And if I worry about this every single day, I'm probably going to stress out my immune system even more. What if I'm on the road to becoming something quite different? You know, I think we we think of evolution as somehow having climaxed with us and we've stopped, but we we are on the road to becoming something different. And you know, I'm very inspired by Bio's idea of, you know, monstrosity that that we have to start thinking about the kinds of collaborations that are happening within our very physicality right now that are neither good nor bad, but are definitely impure in a way that might be interesting. The bluebells around We planted those With our aching hands While we waited for hope You didn't make What is an impactful book that you've read or a publication that you follow? I was very, very inspired and continue to be inspired by Inflamed, Deep Medicine and the Anatomy of Injustice by Rupa Maria and Raj Patel. What is a personal motto, mantra, or practice you engage with to stay grounded? The most important practice is something I call gathering counsel, which is every day when I wake up, I call on by name and not taxonomical Linnaean name, like whatever intimate name denotes kinship. Every being, fungal, microbial, landform, indigenous population, I know in a 10-mile radius. And I call them into council around me so that as I go throughout my day, I realize that every decision I make implicates a whole vasculature of relations. 
And so that I can call on them to help me think better, but I also know that I'm not making decisions in a vacuum. That, you know, suddenly when I turn on my car, I'm a little bit more aware of how this may affect other beings in my extended body, extended mind. So yeah, I, I gather counsel every morning. And it really, I started doing it about six or seven years ago, and it has been one of my, my guiding lights. Yeah. I love that. Really expanding your sense of selfhood. And finally, what is your biggest source of inspiration at the moment? Hmm. I would say invasive species in the Hudson Valley, which is where I live, and how they've been really problematized, and yet they seem to be doing very interesting work in changing the ecosystem as the climate changes. You know, I'm seeing radically different temperatures and seasonal shifts that happened here 10 years ago. And I'm wondering, I'm very curious about how the invasive species are arriving in such a way to shift and change the environment and help it adapt. I mean, it's interesting that figures like Dionysus, who are also involved with revolts against empire, often associated with vines and ivy and invasive species. And I think of Audre Lorde's essay, you know, the master's tools will not dismantle that master's house. Like I, I think of invasive species as being not the master's tools. I think they have a lot to teach me. Well, there's so much more there that I'm sure we could have a whole episode and a conversation <laughs> on. But for now, Green Dreamer, we are coming to a close. But to learn more and stay updated on Sophie's work and upcoming books and writing, of course, you can head to sophiestrand.com and her substack is sophiestrand.substack.com. We'll be sure to link to all of this in our show notes as well, as always, at greendreamer.com. Sophie, what an enriching and thought and feeling provoking conversation for me. I'm so honored to be in conversation with you and just thank you so much for joining me here. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Well, first, thank you for such very thoughtful questions. Um, the only wisdom I have is follow what you love. Like a bee goes into the flower to suck something sweet up and incidentally pollinates other beings, I think that if you follow the specific things that you love, you will incidentally pollinate something. Yeah. This episode of Green Dreamer was brought to you by listeners like you. And to be honest, we cannot keep the show going without more direct support. So if you value independent media and critical conversations like this, you can help to sustain and co-create the future of this show with a donation of any amount at greendreamer.com support or at patreon.com greendreamer. Without a media network behind us, we also rely entirely on human-to-human word-of-mouth sharing so that our extensive library of episodes can inspire and reach more people. So if you get the chance to share your favorite episodes with loved ones or to write us a five-star review in the podcast app, this all helps us out so, so much as well. Green Dreamer is a proud partner of Calliopeia Foundation, which shares our vision and understanding that ecological, cultural, and spiritual renewal are interdependent. The song featured in this episode is Come the Rain by Maggie Clifford. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production manager is Tammy Gunn. Our transcript editor is Janice Cantieri. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Take care, and I will catch you soon in the next episode. <laughs>